Hello, K2H folks. I have the privilege of having a very outspoken protest theater maker with me here virtually, but uh, hopefully very intimately discussing issues that need to be discussed in terms of how to disrupt um, not just theater, but, you know, we need a lot of dis disruptions right now in light of the um, racial situation and the kind of Native Hawaiian movement and things that are going on. And, you know, with Trump still technically in the seat, which, you know, it's weird. I haven't seen him or heard him for a while, which is kind of a nice relief, but I feel this hovering presence that's still lingering and how the heck we're going to um, deal with the remnants of his dirt. But anyway, um, so we have here Keola Simpson, who is the director of I Am Lot Lane. Um, and I don't understand the quotes of the solo effort. And I'll have Keola kind of explain it to us. Keola, you live kind of halfway here and halfway New York. So we're happy to have you here with us. Uh, you're in the theater department, right? Kind of. Well, I'll yeah. let you explain that. I am, yeah. But, all right. But let's go back to like who you are, like where you were born, what's your mother like, how many siblings you have, and what shapes kind of like your primary personality. Let's go from there. That is a fantastic question that nobody ever asks. So thank you very <laughs> really? much for that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Kaylee E. Keola Simpson. Um, I go by Keola and that's strictly from, you know, my mom had a crush on Keola Beamer when she was growing up, who was a, a very famous prominent musician at the time for, for Hawaii. And she just, she was a dancer for him and she really liked him. And my dad's name was Kaylee Ola. And at the last second, she slipped one in and put a K, the K-E in front of the Ola um, on the birth certificate. And before he could figure it out, before my grandmother could figure it out. So I, 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 I have a name that's based off of a little sneak attack lie, but it's because my mom was a performer. And, um, you know, she uh, probably a lot of the ways I think today are, have a lot to do with how she thought back in the 70s. And um, I was born on the road. My mom had a road show. She had her own touring um, uh, uh, I call it a Polynesian review. She gets mad at me when I say that. So um, I'll just say what she wants me to say. She had a, a, a hula uh, traveling show that traveled all around North America. And me and like, um, and my other siblings, um, I'm the second oldest, but I was born on the road. So I was born in a place called Santa Ana, California. Um, um, you know, is that I near have... Disneyland? No, I'm thinking of Anaheim. Yeah, that's exactly it? where it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, my younger brother was born in Edmonton, Alberta, um, uh, Canada. My younger sister was born in Boise, Idaho. Uh, so we were all born on the road. We were ch show kids. I especially was. Um, and, you know, my, my older sister was just a, a really um, talented dancer at the time. I was really jealous of, about how skilled she was. More, more, more importantly, I was more jealous about how the attention she was getting. Um, you know, during summer breaks, um, other groups that were also touring um, would, would loan her. We would loan her out. And for some reason back then to me, uh, that meant she was better than me. I was a musician um, and yeah, I would dance for cutie points, but nonetheless, um, I'm from Haula um, on, on the near the North shore of, of Oahu. And um, you know, my life has been always back and forth um, between traveling and back to Haula. And I never really knew that that's not normal life. I thought the life I had was normal. And when I, when we finally settled back down um, sometime around the early nineties, um, I found out from other kids that my life was not normal. <laughs> so uh, there was an adjustment period. Well, you know, and then questioning what normal is, right? And when we normalize something, we assume that's the normal only until you see that, oh, this can be a norm. And then you flip how you define what normal is, right? Yeah. I, mean, I used to hide it. I, um, I was, uh, there was a little bit of shame for me, um, um, uh, especially in my teen years where, um, 
you know, the, the show life, I, I, I would take the pictures down quite honestly. Um, you know, when friends would come over, um, everybody else was just playing sports, um, having pretty normal lives, living in one home. And I would take the, the pictures down. Um, but now it's different. Now I look back on that. And I'm like, I'm not taking those pictures down anymore. But uh, at that time, were you like doing school? I mean, they didn't have online school then, right? How did you do it if you were on the road all the time? Like- uh, every two months, I would rotate schools every two months because we would play a city for two months. Yeah. We had an old yellow school bus that we transfer uh, changed into a tour bus. And the band and the dancers, um, and we would all travel in a caravan. And we would move cities every two months. And especially when we were in Canada, I, we would do the rotation. I would end up back in a school that I used to be in. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Wait, so this is fascinating. I would still though. do it. This life, like you say, a show kid, you know, I'm imagining kind of like, I don't know, it's like something out of a movie, you know, growing up in, in, a, in a caravan type of a setting where you didn't really have a base, you know, the, the trend, the consistent traveling became base, right? And when you say your yeah. mom um, had you on the road, you know, so she was pregnant to full term and she was still working, was she, I mean, how did, yeah. how did she navigate that? I mean, for me, because, you know, I was a zygote at that point, I don't really know. But like for my brothers and sisters that were younger than me, I got to watch. She would go up into the point where a costume could no longer hide, um, you know, uh, uh, the big belly. Uh And then she would take a break. And then but the other the show would continue on. And then as soon as, um, you know, uh, my younger brother, younger sister were born, she would be right back up there again. And it's like you couldn't tell. So to me growing up, I didn't know that you need more time after having a baby, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we were all raised by musicians and dancers. So there, it's not like we didn't have, um, you know, uh, 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 my mother there, we were all in the same house everywhere we went to, we all lived in the same house. So it was like, a, or when it was 24 seven was that was that life. Right, right. So being with a very musical theatrical family, I mean, were there certain values that your mother instilled in you that has affected the way you approach theater today? Yeah, I mean, I'm cocky and um, I do rub it in her face that I'm better than her. But um, the truth is that she has more guts than I do, because in order to do what she did to pick up and leave Hawaii, to have very little money to do it and just have an idea, um, uh, she had the drive. And I didn't I, um, I'll never match that. But she th- this idea that if you want it, go get it. Um, I definitely get it from her 100%. Um, and there's no excuses when it comes to that stuff. You can make up things like, oh, well, you know, but what about work? What about insurance? What about, um, you know, my kids? Stuff like that. Those were all valid things to have. Um, but uh, there, there was a practical way about the way she did things where she said, no, we're, we can do this and just go and then figure it out as you go from there. Um, and I definitely get that from her. I definitely appreciate it. Right. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Hula on the road for most people who don't really understand Hawaii. And I know you have a thing or two to say about Western theater. Um, how did she have to compromise um, her artistry or um, authentic culture, if you will, for the sake of the, you know, the commercialism and the success of her business? Yeah, I, I, I was young, um, though very aware because I was um, on stage and in the band and, um, you know, dressed up to. So I knew something was different when, you know, over a stretch of five years, I noticed the show was changing. And I, I, I would say that it became very more girls, girls, girls over a period of time. Um, and not like nobody was forcing anybody. It became clear the commercial aspect of girls, girls, girls um, was appealing to, to a, um, you know, middle America, middle North America, I should say, audience. Oh, yeah. 
and I watched the show change. And I remember the day that we considered it, um, that there was a rehearsal um, where they were considering going kind of a cabaret route um, during a particular moment in the show. Um, and it didn't sound good. And it reminds me now when I see Forrest Gump and I see um, Jenny trying to do, trying to sing a song in, in the movie Forrest Gump, but all the guys just wanted to do is, you know, take off your yeah. clothes, yeah. Um, that kind no. of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's... that was the end for me. Oh, ah, okay. But wait, did you always want to do a theater? Was it something because it's everything you've known or is it something that you felt compelled because you had so many things to say through this platform? You know, I really tried to avoid it as long as I could. I like really, really did. I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, I spent a lot of years pretending it doesn't exist. Um, and then it just kind of happened. I was in my undergrad years and I, ha I was forced to pick a major. And, you know, I, I was having fun. I, I mean, I was a jock, essentially. And I remember asking a classroom full of um, people um, when I had to pick a major, I was like, hey, what has the most girls in it? You know, I was, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old. Okay. And they, they said, oh, you should take a theater class. Um, it's mostly women there. And the only guys there are gay. And I was like, all right, sweet. <laughs> so I just went and signed up for all of them. And it like I didn't make it a day into it before I realized uh, this is what I'm going to be doing. Wow. It's interesting how naturally something kind of pulls you into something by force. Right. It's just. Yeah. This, you just don't know. Something is, you are destined to do something. Do you believe in destiny? Uh, 100% I do. Because okay. I try to not believe in it. That's why I believe it. I actively try to ignore it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like how you stumbled on Lot Lane. By the way, for people who are just listening or wondering why I'm talking to Keola Simpson, we're talking because he's the director of this upcoming play, I'm Lot Lane. It's a solo, uh, but very interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to define it as protest theater, and we can unravel that as we go. But I just wanted to make sure people were knowing that we are talking in reference to um, this upcoming performance um, at, at UH. But I, I think it's, you know, also you, you all, you know, you are an actor, you're a stage actor, and you believe in researching a character and the context behind what, um, what shapes that person. And so I find this fascinating that the fact that your, your mother was on a traveling show and you were born on the road and, and, and singing and, or playing with, with this whole family um, performing group. So let's, so you get back into, um, you said you went to theater uh, for undergrad and where does New York and how does that kind of come into play? Cause you go back and forth now. Yeah. Uh, I, when I finished my undergrad years, uh, which was in Southern California, I, you know, I went to school for acting and then I switched to a different school for directing. Um, there was that pivotal time after undergrad where I was in Los Angeles and the idea was, I don't want to do theater anymore. I just want to do film and TV. And right when I got to LA, the writer's strike happened and the wow. entire city just completely shut down. Wow. And I found that I was going back and forth to New York quite a bit to either um, work on friends projects or um, just to be in New York. And I finally was just said to myself, I was like, let's just go do this now. You clearly don't have it out of your system. Let's go to New York for six months, max one year burn theater out of your system and then let's get back to business so i went to new york with that in mind nothing like they didn't want furniture or anything like that and the next thing you know 10 years went by and i had a career 10 years um, yeah. as as a as an actor you yeah were working as an actor in theater in theater and, yeah. and, and film and tv or mostly theater um theater and theater like i'd say 90 percent theater and then tv started to happen for me around 2012 or 2013 um 
I, and, and honestly, by luck, that a lot of this business really is luck. I showed up to New York on August 2nd, August 1st of 2009. Two weeks later, I was in an audition for a theater company that's just really hard to get into. And um, before I can get through my first monologue of two, um, I got stopped by um, a, a, a director in the room who got up and said, all right. And he gets up and walks up toward me. And he's like, where are you from? I was like, oh, uh, Hawaii. Hawaii. <laughs> and he's like, which island? I was like, Oahu. He's like, where on, where on, where on Oahu? I was like, um, Hola. He's <laughs> like, hi, my name's Jim Simpson, born and raised, uh, born and raised um, Oahu. Uh, he goes, welcome, welcome to the company. Oh, wow. I was like, yeah, completely yeah. by luck. And, and he'll even tell you, and I include an interview I did with him when, um, when I was thinking about coming back and doing this. I, in, I included in the pre-show um, the interview I did with him when I told him what I wanted to do. Um, I want to come back here and overthrow this department. And he, um, you know, sat down with me and gave me a long, lengthy interview because he was also retiring at the time. And I included in the pre-show. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, it's all luck. It's all, all of it was luck. I got to New York and I just got luck. lucky. I don't know. I think it's a predestined thing and you're just trying to make it sound nice because things, <laughs> if you look back, are always placed in a way that strategically puts you to where you are today. Now, I wanted you to, I, I heard that word, overthrow theater. And I love this idea of protest theater. What do you mean by that? Where's the idea that I have? Okay. I, I looked at the, the theater scene here and I have friends in New York that are from Hawaii that are prominent players in both TV and theater. And we all say the same things about theater in Hawaii. We're just not saying them out loud to everyone else. Um, it's a piece of trash. And it's not the user's fault. It's not the contributors to the form's fault. There is a systematic um, structure in place that will never allow it to move past what it is um, what it is right now, which is a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. People are Xeroxing a post-World War II idea of theater. And that I, American theater of post-World War II was created for a reason. It was the restructuring of the perception of America, as well as our relationship with the East and how we were going to redefine what an Asian was. Um, during that time. That's what that American theater was created for. That's how it succeeded. That is how the golden age of Broadway got its um, glorification name. But what people leave out of the history part was what um, a downtown New York City did in response to it because the artists downtown weren't being represented up in Midtown and the communities that actually lived there were also not being represented, which is why off-Broadway ended up happening. Everybody downtown was um, all, uh, um, all the writers, um, jazz musicians, um, all the other um, actors were taking over storefronts, coffee by day, theater by night. And it was in reaction to that form of theater that was being sold, which was commercialism, which is for this newly found, um, uh, what's that word people use, expendable income, where uh, like there was a middle class was forming post-World War II. And the idea was, we're going to create this. We're here to entertain you. You particular person who is moving into these new things called suburbs, you come here, spend your money. Well, if you look at those audiences, they all look the same every single one of them. They, they were all white, they were all of a certain age group. Um, and that theater did not include everyone, particularly Asians were not included. The, the Asian Excursion Act was still in effect. It was created for to be for white people by white people. The Hawaiian theater, not Hawaiian theater, I gotta really be careful when I say this, <laughs> I really wanna clarify. Theater in Hawaii is that version of American theater. Nobody does it anymore, nobody. And Hawaii is still doing it. We have people that have good intentions they have absolutely good intentions. There are nice people and I don't wanna crap on everybody about this, but some of those theaters need to be shut down and stop, just stop doing it. No more of this. You are contributing to the problem. 
Diamond Head Theater. You are contributing to the problem. Stop. No more of this. Sorry. <laughs> I, cut off, I cut off the tea. I cut off the tea. Yeah. The, the very I don't hear anything. What are you talking about? Um, who? Let's. Okay. Go ahead. You're steaming. I'll let you go. Keep going. Yeah. So overthrowing this, the way I looked at it is if I, most of these people came from UH's theater department. They move into the communities and, you know, they're part of Manoa Valley. They're part of Kumukuhua. Um, that's where they came from. It starts in that building, right? That building has a long history of some not good people, right? We have plaques and, um, and their names in scholarships. Do, do the research, figure out who these people are that have contributed, that have created this mess. I'm, I'm getting rid of them and they're gonna get rid of all these people. Um, they're not even around anymore, they've passed away. And I'm not trying to say, look, I know times were different back then. All of it has to stop. Get rid of those names, get rid of those scholarships, get rid of that absolute disgusting system that is in place. There are still women who are in their 50s now that have something to say about those men from back then. It all comes from that building. I'm overthrowing that building. I'm overthrowing that apartment. I'm using that exact methods that were used to overthrow Hawaii. They should know what it is. They created it, right? They have a system created on obedience, obedience upward always to the man, and that man always looks a certain way. I've created a system that relies on disobedience and there's nothing they can do to stop it. It's out of their hands now. Okay. So this idea of a theater of disobedience, I mean, obviously you're deconstructing the idea of how theater should be defined to begin with. So I think for people out there who don't even understand the, what you see as the problematics within um, the theater, we're talking about theater in Hawaii specifically, right? Um, yeah. And is, is it, can we, can we be specific and talk about how um, the UH theater department is crafted with this Western theater department that has Asian theater? Um, I mean, is that yeah. what's problematic about it? That we have these kind of um, categories that reduce it to a certain type? Or um, is it the people who reinforce the type of plays that are being um, put on that people don't, we frame it within um, a familiarity and what we, define as trying to be disruptive is really not even disruptive, right? I mean, yeah. the, the, you know what I'm saying? It's like, who's who's calling the shots in what is kind of um, considered bold and brave and boundary breaking, <laughs> right? Let's do this. Let's sure. take a quick, wait, I need, let's take a quick break because what you just said okay. there, I think people need to digest that. We'll come back and we'll come back to talk about how, why we need to disrupt theater, why we need to, you say, why we need to overthrow the theater here and why it's important to kind of resituate ourselves to understand what theater really should be about today. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Keola Simpson, director of I'm Lot Lang, which is going to be uh, premiering here uh, virtually uh, on behalf of the theater department. But uh, interestingly enough, this, um, this theater department is the very kind of foundation of what we're talking about and critiquing. Um, and uh, maybe Keola, you can re, uh, reinforce what you just said in a nutshell about uh, your vision of why we need to kind of uh, overthrow and disrupt and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, really rebuild the concept of theater here. Um, but I wanted to ask you whether it was because of your time in New York when you saw what empowered you, you know, the, the feelings, the raw energy of, of real art, but that's not, we don't want to belittle what's going on in, in Hawaii, of course, but 
to think about what influenced you in those years in um, New York and how that kind of kind of propelled you to have this energy to want to do this disruptive theater here. Why, you know? And ironically, you're leaving out of your comfort zone to come back to do something in your hometown that you're critiquing so strongly. Yeah. You know, one of the, the things I learned when I first started getting to New York on a regular basis was people aren't afraid to be passionate about what they believe in. They're not afraid to um, pursue their art. They want people to know about it. Um, there's no um, embarrassment about putting yourself out there. I, I, I understand culturally why um, um, here in Hawaii, why we're a little bit more reserved. Um, us being humble is um, it's something that you, you are born into and then you're constantly checked by your families by uh, growing up and by your, your neighbors and your friends. And I understand it and I don't mean to disrespect it because I don't really want to because I think it's actually a good quality. But when it comes to the work, when it comes to your art form, you are restraining it when you put things on, on it like a muzzle. Um, if I took anything from New York that I'm bringing back here is don't apologize for what you for your work. Don't apologize for it. Do it. Put it out there. Be loud about it. Um, being polite about this stuff, being, um, you know, as kind as you can. Here's the better word for it. Being gentle with your art is only going to hurt the art. Let it out there. Put it out there. If somebody has a problem with it. That's a good thing. Somebody's not going to agree with what I'm doing here. Right. And I hope and I don't want them to. I don't want, I don't want to be right. I don't have to be right. That's ultimately the bigger problem, what we're all dealing with right now is everybody just wants to do just enough to get by. I'm going to put it out there. You got a problem with it? Respond. I will respect the hell out of you if you respond. I want somebody to rise up and say, nah, he got it wrong. This is how to do it. I will respect the hell out of that. Put yourself out there. It's okay. I'm bringing that energy here. Yeah, but I'm not alone. There are others that feel the same way. There are others that feel the same way. There are people in places that are trying to keep everybody back down into their subcategory, which is, the um, you know, if we want to get into the structural issues and we can, that is the problem. We are subcategorizing everybody. We are othering people. We have a Western American theater philosophy that happens with like some company called Hawaii State Theater Council. They have nothing to do with Hawaii. They have nothing to do with the state. Yet they make these uh, make an award show that is fine. I think it's great. Have an award show. Celebrate the work getting done. Stop othering people. Stop taking an Asian production and saying, okay, we'll put you in a traditional category. Stop asking the Hawaiian productions to be put in the traditional category. Don't be afraid. Let it happen. Um, but these are, these are just subcategories that we're putting. Western, American, um, uh, Hawaiian, Asian. Um, you know, our department is cut into three things. I think it sums up Hawaii pretty well. You have Western or American and Asian. The subcategory, and I'm going to keep my middle finger down, ends up being Hawaiian in this particular case, in that particular building. I'm making it so that I will take your Western department and I will make everything I make will be Hawaiian. And then what are you gonna do about it? You can't but do But I understand they are restructuring, right? They're in the process of recognizing this. And I think it's in light of the whole Black Lives Matter movement where it felt like all this, if we don't make big change, we are going to sink. Um, and so, what do you think about that? You know, with the kind of the strengthening of the Hawaiian theater department, and do you think that's like a good yeah. strong move forward? Is this going to change anything? Depends on how much tea you want, but uh, the, <laughs> the ultimate truth of the matter is, is they're only doing it because I made them do it. Um, when, when George Floyd was killed, um, I noticed that a lot of um, uh, companies around um, America were releasing statements 
Um, and then a list started going around about universities that had not released a statement. Um, somebody reached out to me about um, UH. I said, technically, no, they haven't. So I was emailed the department to the chair of the department say, don't, while I was writing the letter saying, don't, don't put out a statement. If you're going to put out a statement, you need to address these things. And while I was writing that, a statement came out and it was crap. It was, um, it was belittling. It was a lie. And I wrote them back and said, I'll give you seven days to rewrite it or I'm doing it for you. Seven days went by, all the excuses in the world came out about why we can't do this, why we can't have a meeting about that, why we can't fix this. And I was like, I bet you you can. So I thought I'd start my production of I'm Lot Lane um, right then and there on June 8th, um, this past summer. Um, I released the prologue for it, it's called Replaced. And I released it on a stage that they know nothing about, which is it's an online stage that they don't believe in. And I released it, um, you know, uh, New York time, it was 6 a.m. Hawaii time. By the time Hawaii woke up, it had already been spread and read over a thousand times by universities all over the country. And there was nothing they can do to control the outcome of it. That is why they're restructuring. Okay. So you threw out a prologue to a play that you had envisioned already before you even started it, or you've always had this. So tell me a little bit about Lot Lane and why this is a piece that is, um, so important and what does it represent in terms of your activism towards uh, restructuring or deconstructing theater here? Yeah, I'm Lot Lane, a solo effort. It's not a biography on Lot Lane. Otherwise I would just call it Lot Lane. It is called I'm Lot Lane, a solo effort. I'm Lot Lane is what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find him, I'm trying to access him. I spent a lot of time on this man and the show isn't so much about him. It's me really, really trying to find him. And I think I did. I think I figured it out. I think I know what he was thinking. And only when confirmed by the family did I realize that, oh crap, like this is, this is a real thing. This guy was a real person. Um, he got buried. When I really, when I say I know what he was thinking, he was ahead of what we, everyone else. He jumped into the fight. He was physically fighting. He was constantly fighting. The last battle was in 1895, so to speak. And I'm not saying war, I'm saying battle because the war technically never ended. International law says we are still at war with America. Hmm. That is how it is defined. We are still at war. You're either at peace or at war. We are at war still. He didn't end. He took it over to the political arena where wars moved to. War, all politics are is just an extension of war. He moved over there and he was really good at it. But at the time I understand, you know, uh, especially Hawaiians looked at, you know, if you're participating in this, you were joining them. And I understand why it looked that way. And when I first started making this play, it was my hope was I can maybe some of our community leaders will realize it's time. That's where the real fight is, is happening in the back rooms of politics. And since two years ago, our community leaders have been stepping up. And, and so part of me thought there's no need for this play anymore. You know, um, our, our, one of our greatest activists still around today from, from the 60s, 70s, stepped up and said, you know what, I'm gonna run. And he did, he lost. That's not the point. My point is he put himself out there and he was willing to take that risk. And everybody did get behind him. And that's just one step forward. Kai Kahele is now our US Congre uh, Congress representative right now. He put himself out there, he joined the game. Um, that's where the fight is. All Lot Lane was doing is doing exactly what they're doing today. He was just doing it 125 years ago. Um, I can look back at now and read every single thing he's ever said through the press and realize how articulate it was, how skilled he was, and he knew what the platform of the time was, which was the newspapers. He knew how to use it. He knew because they were using it against us. 
how does that work with me? Why is it um, um, I'm lot lane a solo effort? Because I don't think this university, I don't think um, the theater makers within it understand what theater is and the platform we have and why we use it, why we do what we do. I released the prologue for this play online because I knew I always knew we were going online. They were just in denial. They were saying, oh, no, things are going to get back to normal. Um, you know, the fall will come and we'll be back in theaters. It was never going to happen. Right. It's so you constructed you know, this play purely with the intent of because you knew this was your platform, um, which reaches yes. a larger, much larger audience. But there are different ways to approach, you know, obviously this virtual space, right? Um, but I wanted to back up a little bit about Lot Lane um, because most people don't know who he is, right? And right. you're not even talking about him in just a biography form, like you said. Um, but you did mention in, I think, in some press that, um, you know. It, he, he silenced in history and why was he silenced and why is that important and how does theater kind of have that space to treat silenced um, characters or stories? Why is that so important? Yeah. Propaganda is a problem in theater. It's just, it is. It's, it's a major problem and it, it, it really does come from a particular era where we were trying to spread propaganda and it's still stuck here that way. So that's just the American theater and their dependency on propaganda from that era. The problem with, um, you know, it's a touchy subject, but I don't mind having it because I think we need to start having it is the counter to the propaganda that was used against the Hawaiians by the Americans. The counter to it should not be propaganda. The opposite of the opposition of propaganda is not another form of propaganda. The opposition is truth. In the middle lies the truth. We have cherry-picked a lot of our own history as we correct what was said about us. We have cherry-picked some things. In the cherry-picking, we have missed a lot of the people that got stuck in the middle. And I don't say this to put down our historians because I depend on them. They are the real heroes to me. Our historians are, are, are I can't do what I do without them. I depend on them. There are stories that were lost. My, what I'm getting to right now is why were they lost? And I think it's because they didn't fit our narrative. They didn't fit our own version, and that's when it becomes propaganda. People lock, like Lot Lane is not alone. He's not some hero that um, you know got his crown taken away. That's not what I'm saying at all. We have a natural. This could be from Western culture. I don't know where it comes from, but we have the ability to look back on things and place a place a moment or an event um, into the important categories. We can do that with people as well, and we forget about the other people. A lot of people that we don't know about right now have gotten lost in this and their stories don't need to be pretty. They don't need to be neat. Look for the mistakes. This is what I do as an actor is when we, when we investigate, you have to look for the mistakes. That's the only way you can learn about a person. If you're only looking at all the things that went right, you're looking at the wrong people because it doesn't exist. It's not true. Well, how do you find their flaws? You know, if, if history is kind of political already and it's framed by the people with power to see how they want to frame something, then that's going to be left out of it. And so how do you as a researcher, as a, as a creator, find those places to build, you know, texture to your character? <laughs> when, you're, when, when you're trained as an actor, you're basically trained to be a stalker. Um, you have the ability to look for things in places um, that people would otherwise skip by. And one of the first things that um, I'm doing is I have to look at what other people are saying about the person. That's where you're gonna get your value from. Look for the things that describe that person from someone else. 
then you got to look at the gaps in time. You always you, you create a timeline. Um, you, you look the gaps in time will tell you more than the two um, pivot points. You're looking for the These setting spaces. Yeah. Yeah. You have to look there. When you get there, you start. You when I get there, I, I'm just trying to figure out what this person wants. I'm, I'm an actor. I'm not a historian. They do important work. Yes. I'm, I just want to know what that person wants. I don't care if they're right or wrong. I don't care if they're good or bad. I don't care. I just want to know what they want. And so I have to try to figure out how to link these things. And once I figured this thing out about him, I was very confident that I knew the outcome of this and I knew what he was trying to do. When I eventually checked with the family and got things confirmed, it was not just relief, because I didn't want to get it wrong, but it was also confirmation that the silent places, the gaps in time, looking at what other people say about another person is where you can really, really, really truly learn about a person. Because not everybody, we're all performing. You and I are performing right now. We know we have an audience, right? When people are talking about Lot Lane via the press, they know they have an audience. They are performing. They aren't saying it to him. They're saying it to an audience. Sure. That is a performance. You're going to learn about that person and what they want from it. So the Hawaiian newspapers um, uh, from the, because I, I cannot read at the pace that everyone else can. So it takes me a while. So friends do help. Okay. You're going to find that they're very similar to what the American papers were saying. It just, it goes up like, oh, he's really strong, manly, um, really tough. Everybody's afraid of him to, oh no, he's weak. He's, um, you know, he, he coughed up everything and told us everything. Either way, that's the same story. You've just, all you've done is shown me is that um, the patriarchal elements of, um, of contact and how it moved in Hawaii was very existent at the time that you're re relying your information to be on manhood. It's the same story to me. You can tell me he's strong. You can tell me he's weak. It means the same thing to me. You're placing a value on someone's qualities based off of how tough they are. The people who are doing the talking are the ones doing it. He was never talking like that. It describes the world to me. The, so the, um, can I what? ask you about these newspapers? Because, you know, as, as a, you know, a student myself, you know, during research, sometimes you, you have to train yourself to question your sources, right? So um, the newspapers, um, are they, you know, are, are they kind of filtered by the audience that usually reads these things? You know, for example, I want to address racism and, and how, how kind of tainted these lenses are of these news people who kind of want to depict them in a certain way. Is it because of anything that had to um, do with, you know, a, a racial view, a racialized view of, of, of a Hawaiian character. I don't know. I'm just uh, trying to yeah. figure out. No, it's true. Um, I, I, the reason why I found Lot Lane was, an, it, was um, it was an accident. I was working on a play called 1893 Aloha Hawaii, which is about how the press was used to topple a monarchy. So I spent all my research time um, in the newspapers. I wanted to look at how they were using the press to do this in similar ways that we see cable news today um, and how the uh, politicians use the press in order to spread their message. Back then we only had newspapers, right? When you go back and read the papers from 1893 to 1895, to, I don't care what your views are today. I'll, I'll just reference two networks, MSNBC and Fox, depending on what your leans are. I have a feeling we're all leaning a certain direction. But if you think Fox is bad right now, yeah. If you think Fox is bad, go back and read the Hawaii newspapers in 1893. It is way worse. And politicians um, <clears throat> were using that platform to perform, essentially. They knew who their audience was. 
and they were spreading a message and they were convincing the people of Hawaii, not Hawaiians, because back in 1893, we had a lot of Portuguese, we had Chinese, we had Japanese at the time. Um, we had a lot of uh, uh, European whites and American whites at the time. Those newspapers were going after those people and spreading a message about people that look like me. And the way they knew how to do it was they tapped into America's form of racism. And all of a sudden the cartoon pictures in those papers that were being described were being darkened. Mm. And all the way to the point where they were straight black. They knew if they can attach black to us, it would connect um, the, the, the overall theme, especially back then in America, it was still pretty, mm, things were rough <laughs> and still rough today, but the connection between darker skin and animals. Yeah. That is the message they were, that's, that, that's how they were using that platform. Yeah. And it was very effective. It was very effective. So um, I'm sorry, I drifted from the question on it, but it is how the press was used. So I focused on that show in 1893. I only wanted to look at the newspapers, a librarian in, a, in the Hawaiian library, which is discreetly tucked away, mind you, on the fifth floor of the Hamilton library. You would never know it's there unless you are someone like us knows it's there. It's tiny, um, but there's a librarian in there um, that I, I, uh, I spoke to. His name's Kapenishim. And I just said, hey, listen, I'm doing a show on this. I want just the press. And he, he gave me a stack of things and he slipped in a little book, really, really tiny, tiny book. And I was like, I don't need this. And he's like, ah, I'll just give it to you. And it was a diary. And it was uh, Princess Kaiulani of all the letters she had sent and also received during that period of time from 1893, even through say 1905-ish. Of course, I read it all. And in there was a letter that was written to what I assume is a family member, but it was only initialed, but based off of the um, personal conversation, it's somebody close to her. I was writing to tell her about a man in 1895 named Lot Lane, who had led this battle against the provisional government and then when, um, when the war battle was ending, he was the last one standing and everybody was looking for him. He walked himself into their prison and said, I'm Lot Lane. The idea was that, that from based off of those letters that he went in there because he knew these boys that had been captured were not gonna get taken care of. They weren't gonna be fed and he was gonna have to go in there and make sure they get taken care of because his reputation. His reputation was that he was a big, strong dude that everybody's scared of and he knew it. I know he knew how people thought about him and he knew how to weaponize that walked himself into that prison and, and, and continued to fight in there. I only know about it because of a letter that was tucked away in a diary. I saw it, I bookmarked it. I said, I will come back to you, um, but I need to focus on this other thing. Two months later, I went back to New York and started devising um, the, 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 the structure of the show and came back and did a test run of it um, back in 2019. Um, but it was all an accident. I don't know how it's I found it. It's not an accident. I... It's not. These are these nuggets that are placed in your life that have somehow sparked something that was waiting to be ignited. Um, I wanted to um, finish up with this idea because you say you you're, one of your purposes is to kind of like, um, I guess if you say start a fire um, in the theater department, and we talked about that, and you were very explosive in that. But so how does this lot lane, which is going to be performed this week, right? Um, I can yeah. getting to remind people it starts this weekend, right? There's, is it Saturday and Sunday? It is Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday night, Saturday night, and then Sunday matinee, um, this Friday, Saturday, Sunday, December four, five, and six. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if people are just tuning in, I'm talking to Kayla Simpson just because you don't want to miss this. This is I'm at Lot Lane, um, which is an incredible piece of um, something that after hearing from you and your discovery of this character from this nooks and crannies of the fifth floor of the Hamilton Library in this little book of, of letters is just so 
beautiful and um, it just shows how significant and how well hidden the true gems of stories are in you know um, and how we can turn it into something. So how do we turn it into it, the disruptive theater is what I'm trying to get at, is that why is this piece so important as a form of disruptive theater, if you will? I'm glad you asked this question. <laughs> the online theater is not new. It is 100% not new. Anybody who says it is, is it's somebody who doesn't know how to do it. That's why they say it is new. The only thing new about this is social distancing version of online theater. There are people that have been doing this a very, very long time. I retired from stage acting at the end of 2015, not because I didn't want to act anymore. It's because I wanted to focus on the online stages. I spent my time and I committed the time to figuring out the attention span of an audience that who was a less committed viewer, looking at screens like the one I'm looking at right now or their phone. It's different. Okay, no longer are they purchasing the ticket in advance, making babysitter plans, going out to dinner first, driving to a theater. That's a committed viewer. You have them for two hours. The world we are living in right now, that is not the same viewer. You, we cannot take a square shape and fit it into a circle. And that's what exactly is happening right now. When I launched Replace on June 8th of, two, uh, of this past summer, it was to let them know the power of what it is theater is supposed to be doing. I put a play out there, just the scripted form which is what they adore so much, this superior written form that the Western world puts on indigenous places and had put on indigenous places. I gave it to them in a form of play to remind them, you cannot control this outcome. This is what an online stage is. Every time I do an interview like this, we this is part of this production. Everything has been steering up to this thing. We are leading into a, a show, an event, so to speak, um, called I'm Lot Lane, a solo effort. It is not meant to end this weekend. It is to completely reshape how people think about what theater is supposed to be for. We are not film. This is when you want to know the difference between film and, and theater. It's as simple as this. When you watch a film, you're watching a character for 120 minutes. When you're watching theater, you're watching an actor for two hours put on various levels of a character. We know that they're an actor. We know that there's an audience. That is the principal difference between the two. We all have to stop this dumb conversation about live, about, um, you know, spectacle. They're misusing spectacle the entire time. They were playing dress up with the past. Strip all of that crap out of the way. You don't even know what spectacle is and how to use it. You need nuance in front of it or behind it. Either way, it's got to be there or else spectacle is not spectacular. There, we've completely gone too far. We have drifted too far. People think that I'm here to entertain you. I'm not here to entertain you. Go watch a film if you wanna be entertained. If you come this weekend, I promise you this, I'm not gonna entertain you, all right? That's just not going to happen. Should you come and watch this? Maybe. Um, who's this, who is this show for? For theater people that think this show is for you? I hate to break it to you. I'm not, I'm not here to do a show for theater people. My audience is not theater people. My audience has always been people who would never normally go to the theater. Will theater people like it? Yes. And, 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 and so I'll back it up and tell you this theater people, it's not for you, but the show is from you. This is your opportunity to tell the, everybody you've invited to a show before that you couldn't get to come and they're just not into your thing. This is your opportunity, bring one of them. Buy, them, buy them a ticket. I don't want you to pay for it. I think it should be free, but nonetheless, the dumb business model we have right now is you know, selling a product that has zero demand. There is nobody has asked for this. Nonetheless, I'll steal you the link if I can find it, but it's your opportunity as a theater person to go and bring somebody into the world that you think you love so much, that you know you love so much. Bring them into it. Let them see what it is you do for real. That's, that's who the show is for. It's for them, but it's from you. Thank you. 
I'm going to leave it at that because people need to breathe that into their lives today to remind them to go and watch this this weekend. I'm Lot Lane by Keola Simpson. Thank you so much. Thank you.